Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves, sitting in today for the mysteriously missing man, Hunter Cates. On today's show, we're bringing you a better late than never review of Mad Max Fury Road. Plus, I have a chat with musician-turned-filmmaker Bo Jennings about his documentary The Vertigris in Search of Will Rogers. Then in special features, we will discuss ambition addicts. That is, characters whose ambition, well-meaning or not, acts as both a gift and a curse. And finally, we will wrap up the show as always with some really rad recommendations. But first, where the hell is Hunter? Last week, Hunter and I tested our kinship as co-hosts. We fled our homes in the heartland and became bi-coastal. I spent my time gallivanting around Old New Amsterdam, while he pulled a Dick Whitman and escaped to L.A. Word on the street is, no one has seen or heard from him since. So, Jake and I are going to take a moment in memoriam to hypothesize and theorize on what has happened to our dear friend Mr. Cates. Jacob Graves, what's your best guess on what became of Hunter? Well, uh, just judging by the credit sequence, I assumed he jumped out of a window. If he really did go full Dick Whitman. Um, he, you know, or, or he could have joined that uh, that commune. Uh, maybe he would like to buy the world a summer shandy, which is what I'm thinking is keeping him from being a part of this episode. Or, or you know, maybe he was actually preparing for the, the his loss. And in doing so, he, as he predicted, you know, last episode, uh, actually had a heart attack and he's no longer with us. It, it's it's possible. I assumed Mad Max put him in a coma. I assumed he had only ever seen Stagecoach as far as road films go. And, and just the sight <laughs> of uh, Tom Hardy on the war mobile put, put him into a coma. Or maybe after he saw Mad Max Fury Road, he decided he wanted to join the war boys. You know, he could be feasting in Valhalla. For he is shiny. Ah, yes. He lived. He died. He lives again. And on that note, what do you say we kidnap a harem, load up the war rig, book it to the green place, and review Mad Max Fury Road? Vroom, vroom. My world is fire and blood. Everything is dependent on oil. I'm killing for gasoline. The world is almost out of water. 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 Now there's the water wars. Here they come again. Everybody's gone out of their mind. Australia's very own Han Solo, Max Rokotansky, has returned to the big screen yet again in Mad Max Fury Road. This time, Tom Hardy has the keys to the V-8 Interceptor in the titular role Mel Gibson made famous over the span of three cult classics. Or at least two cult classics and one I've been told was pretty cool as a kid, but doesn't really hold up so much anymore. The plot of this one's pretty simple. A rogue war rig driver named Furiosa, played by Charlie Theron, kidnaps a harem of five women, owned by Immortem Joe. Joe is the aging patriarchal lord of the Citadel, the commander of the War Boys, and the hoarder of Aquacola. Or water. Really, it's just water. And don't forget the breast milk. He's also hoarding lots of breast milk. But anyway, upon discovering the disappearance of his wives, Joe and his army of war boys give chase to Furiosa. They're joined by clans ruled by the Jolly Gentleman, the Bullet Farmer, and the People Eater. And basically all hell breaks loose on the vast open strip of desert known as the Fury Road. Oh yeah, Max is around somewhere too. But like I said before, he's essentially Australian Han Solo. He's mostly there to interact with pre-existing drama. The events of this newest installment occur... Well, actually, I'm not really sure where they occur in the chronology of the Mad Max series, but that's okay because George Miller, the writer and director of the films and Babe Pig in the City and Happy Feet. Ah, yes. And Happy Feet says he's not quite sure about the franchise's chronology either. In a time when studios put so much energy into building a cinematic universe. For those of you playing at home, take a drink. Uh, pardon me. In a time when studios put so much energy into building interconnected storylines spanning multiple movie titles and even fusing franchises, I find it really refreshing that the fourth installment of this franchise can be consumed independently of its predecessors. Jake, I'm going to sit in Hunter's seat for a moment and talk a little bit about box office. As you said at the top of the show, this is kind of a better late than never review of Mad Max Fury Road. It's been out for several weeks and it's losing steam at the box office. It's fared well in global numbers, but it doesn't look like it will surpass its budget in domestic ticket sales alone. 
Critics love this movie. I love this movie. I know you love this movie. There are people listening right now who have not yet seen Mad Max Fury Road and probably won't see it in the theater. I want to hear your best elevator pitch, motivating them to drop everything they're doing right now and go buy a ticket. Right now? Yeah, right now. You have to see Mad Max. If you like action movies, even if you don't like action movies, this is the most distilled down, visually stunning, most well-edited action movie that has been on the screen in the past 10 years. I, Without a doubt. I don't even know anything to, to compete with it. I, I honestly, I'm not, I don't think that's hyperbole. Like, this is exactly what I want from, like, a, a big a big budget tentpole action movie. But it's one of those things that, honestly, I wasn't sure was necessarily possible until until seeing it you know like every time you see those great trailers for uh for action movies where it's just like everything it feels like great kinetic energy and action uh i i feel like i go and see them and then i'm i'm worn out by the end and i you know i i was energized throughout all of this and i and i think so much of that goes just straight to uh, the credit of George Miller in his direction of this in maybe since the Bourne movies, Paul Greengrass and and his shaky cam and everything. You get a lot of action that seems to be implied just through being really close, not actually seeing anything. But, you know, they believe that through basically verite action cinema, uh, they're they're presenting action to you. And Miller really seems to pull himself out and. You know, he's providing craziness and chaos, but I never felt like I was ever lost. Fight scenes are, are hard to do. We, we they, know fight scenes are difficult. Yeah. And, and, and an easy way to cheat is to use the shaky cam. It shakes a lot. You think you're seeing a lot of fighting. And, and at the end, I mean, it works for 30 seconds of, oh, man, that happened. But you can't sustain it for this long. The the best fight scenes are, are, I think, shot more like dance scenes where you see both parties and you know the distance between them and it all has relevance. And uh-huh. this, if the best fight scenes are dance scenes, this is the opera or the ballet of car chase movies. Yeah. You know, you say that fight scenes are hard to do and so you, you make it shaky and you kind of move it around and, and then you mask it that way. Like, I would say doing a... I guess from start to finish, it's not 120 minutes of just a car chase, but it's it's got to be what over 90 for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was shocked by the pace. And I'm sure if it would have been two straight hours of a car chase, I would have been exhausted. But the brakes when they came were earned. They made sense. They were paced perfectly and they were just long enough that when the car chase started back up, it was that much better. I, I don't know how they timed it so well. I don't know how they knew instinctively it needs to be this long. So as I was sitting watching it, I was just thinking, like, how do you even possibly choreograph, you know, all of this together? Because it just seems, you know, it really doesn't let up and not in not in an exhausting way, but in just like a sort of the the tension and the momentum just keeps moving forward uh, in, in a very engaging way. And, you know, I, I sent you an article uh, earlier today that I had, had just read about, uh, sort of the composition of this, uh, this movie and, and the way Miller, you know, approached direction, that sort of thing. And uh, do you remember what the number was? How many, uh, uh, they shot 240 hours. No, they shot 480 hours of film for the, for the completed two hour film, which is a 240 to one ratio. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. I mean, that's that's like beyond Terrence Malick numbers. And, you know, reading the article on uh, I think it's VashiVisuals.com, he mentions that George Miller didn't really have a script going in. Um, you know, he'd been working on it for 10 years, but he had just amassed a, a giant storyboard, like something like 3,500 frames. So basically just plotting out the way the entire movie was going to flow cinematically you know through visuals which i think you can really feel and tell on the screen well and and the interesting thing thing to me is as far as story goes it's basically just the monomyth it's the the dan Harmon story circle uh i I think i'm legally required to mention dan Harmon every time i'm on (laughs) war starts at midnight Uh, it's the dan Harmon story circle where you start and you cross a threshold and you have a meeting with the goddess and you go out and you come back a changed person it's almost that's it that's the whole plot. He he very wisely made it something that, you know, this story is very universally relatable or very universally understandable. And I feel like it's something that really, I mean, you could have set this 2000 years ago. You could have set this 2000 years in the future. And the base core of this story would still basically be the same and, w- and would absolutely work, I feel. 
it's it's the classic hero's journey and and this is an interesting thing i thought about the movie after the uh chase uh the first chase where they end up out at the green place uh i and they, and they look off and furiosa drives off into the distance i thought the movie could have been over with some sequel bait mm-hmm. right there of oh the next one's going to come and it'll be you know some other story but it wasn't and they turned around and they gave you more bang for your buck also because it seems like Miller's not really concerned with you know building a a franchise as a you know thing that continues on from one to the next it's almost you know it, it kind of max kind of reminds me of like uh i don't know the uh, the man with no name from the Clint Eastwood, Sergio Leone movies, or, you know, he's that sort of wondering, he's definitely conflicted in some ways, but, you know, he kind of happens into these larger conflicts that are already going on and then just inserts himself into it. And, and not entirely, you know, it's not like he's just doing it for the greed of himself. He's, he's definitely, you know, trying to survive. That is his main goal, but, uh, he he's also bringing good to the people that he interacts with. But, it, but it's definitely not a film about Mad Max, in my opinion. It's a film no. about Furiosa and the universe and the world and and a, a Morden Joe. Yeah, I mean, absolutely but not it, Max. And and no, not not Max at all. And and I love that too. I mean, what's that's pretty ballsy to you know take a and granted it's more of a cult uh, series. I would I would say, but to take it and you know still hanging on that uh that mad max label which i'm sure you know partially you've got to do to sell tickets and get butts and seats uh but to then say you know what we're going to really focus i mean furiosa is definitely the star of this movie i think i i don't even know like if you can contest that um and she's great like charlie's theron is great in this movie uh, and, and then what did you think about, uh, Immortan Joe? I mean, the, the bad guy, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a group of bad guys more detestable. Uh, but, but in, in a, in a really endearing way, like I, I found, found nothing in them that I liked and they were the perfect thing that I wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I love the guitar player who, by the way, has a name and a backstory. He's coma doof warrior also known as the Doof Warrior. This is according to a Mad Max wiki that I found. Uh-huh. He's a blind guitarist who is part of a Morden Joe's militia riding and playing upon the Doof Wagon. <laughs> of course, the Doof Wagon. His mask... So uh, he has his, in his backstory, his mom's head is cut off and dropped in his lap, and he makes his face mask from her face skin. Oh, that's... None of that is covered in this film, and it's all just hinted backstory. Like you, It's this fully realized world that you only see a really thin sliver of, but you can tell watching it that there is more to this world. There's an explanation for why you have a guitarist chained to a drum, the Doof Wagon. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Doof, Doof Wagon. wagon. It's, a, it's, it's the world's largest martial stack is what it is. How, how it wasn't a prop from a, 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 a darkness music video, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll never know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, and, you know, mentioning that the, you know, there, there's just depth and, and story behind all that, you know, he, I think, uh, Miller does a whole lot of good here in not trying to get too explainy, you know, he doesn't get too deep into exposition of anything. Um, but he gives you enough, like, I, I feel like if you were to ask him a question about, you know, it really any of the characters, in this movie, no matter how small he could give you at least a five minute synopsis of who they are, where they come from, all of that. For sure. I thought it was interesting how there's movies with more exposition that I felt had worlds that were not as deep as this one. Yeah. This one had almost no exposition. It, you saw things that implied such craziness. The, the, uh, Immortan Joe's, the Citadel, mm-hmm. just that and everything going on in there. As soon as you see it. Well, yeah. And just like the dynamic between, between Amorden Joe and the War Boys, and then the sort of beggar people who are you know at the foot of the Citadel, um, you know he tells it very sparsely, but he gives you just the right amount of information that you need to know. Even even with Amorden Joe, I mean, so we're talking later in special features about uh, ambition addicts, I believe is uh, how we're phrasing it, and. Uh, that was kind of inspired by a Morden Joe. And you don't really, I mean, when we are entering into uh, his world, you know, seeing him for the first time, he's a bad guy. I mean, there's no question about it, but also when we're introduced to him, we're, there's sort of this great dynamic of he's, 
this gross, white, old, boily, you know, dude who uh, has to have a breathing apparatus, has to, you know, he just looks disgusting. Um, but they're putting these this armor on him. And the armor does two things for me. One, it kind of says that, okay, this guy has a backstory far beyond what we're seeing. Like, he's a decorated officer of some kind. And, you know, you can very easily sort of begin to see how all of these things come together, how he worked his way into uh, power. You know, I, maybe it was a war hero of some kind or a, a, you've got two things that are really important in this world, water and gasoline. And he's controlling a vast amount of water. I mean, a an amount that we don't even we're not even really sure of the full potential of. But clearly, if he's able to just rain down waterfalls like he's he's a very powerful man in that. Well, and, and he took the resources that he controlled and he spun them into this religion that he created yeah. and has a full following for it. It's not even a group of people who are scared of him. They worship him. Yeah. And it, it's a very weird, you know, it is, it is a clan. It is a like, I mean, you could, you could definitely see how in those, in that sort of situation. Yeah. I could, I could totally buy into that. I could totally become a war boy. But the other thing that I wanted to get at with uh, talking about his, his, body armor and all of that there was also a sort of juxtaposition of the body armor which is supposed to represent him being tough and strong and then like seeing what is it, the little boy who's like spraying down his back or doing doing something weird uh with his body like he's clearly like from the moment you meet him you kind of realize he's a false idol Right, for sure. Did you did you think it was interesting the uh, after credit sequence when he took off his armor and he, we realized he was played by Mel Gibson? <laughs> I I wish I hadn't sat through the credits just to, <laughs> just <laughs> so that I could believe that. Oh, oh man. man, you know that's that's probably the type of role Gibson should be uh, should be going after these days. Do Do you think it would have been more interesting had they put Gibson in this role? As an older Mad Max. Full disclosure here. I've only seen Mel Gibson in one Mad Max movie, and that's The Road Warrior, which I only recently watched because I was told, you know, this is this is the the Mad Max movie to see. It's I I think, you know, I feel like I've seen I saw bits of these as a kid, but I have no real recollection of exactly story or anything. So I don't know. But. Um, Tom, you know, pitting Tom Hardy against Mel Gibson, I think Tom Hardy does a better job with the role. Full disclosure, I haven't seen the uh, the, the Mel Gibson movies. I haven't, I haven't seen any of them. So I came into this completely fresh. And an interesting thing you talked about, the brand putting, you know, butts in the seats. Uh, when I saw the trailer, it actually was sort of a turnoff that it was part of the Mad Max universe because mm-hmm. I hadn't seen any of the films and I typically am a completist. I like to go and start at the beginning yeah, and work through. Yeah. Annoyingly so, I would say. Uh, yeah, very annoyingly so. <laughs> and and so with that, that kind of put me off. And also looking at the trailer, it looked beautiful, but I'm I'm used to seeing trailers where they try to, to make stuff look yeah, epic and yeah. it ends up really disappointing. And while I like action movies, I don't like sitting through bad action movies. I rather sit through you know, uh, something that I more reliably know I'm going to enjoy. Yeah. And when the reviews started pouring in for this and when it finished above fifth in the box office for <laughs> Memorial Day weekend, I just knew it was a film. Is, that is, was that was was that the tipping point for you? Uh, I saw a Memorial Day weekend, but unrelated to the uh, Summer Shandy <laughs> bet. Um, yeah. You know, I like I said, I hadn't seen any of them either when when the trailer came out. I mean, I was I was stoked by the trailer. I. Uh, I only saw the teaser, but that was enough for me. I mean, it, it was, it was a very well crafted trailer. And amazingly enough, like the, I feel like the movie even over delivered on my expectations. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't even understand how it, like, I, I, I know it was great. It was fantastic. And I'm still shocked by how great they made it. I know I'm spoiling my, uh, my review of this or my, uh, rating of it at the end, but. I, I was really, really blown away, and everybody I saw it with was as well. Yeah, like I, I, I saw it with a pretty small crowd, but they were all, you know, you know, into like, I mean, and, and there's not, it's not necessarily a movie where you're going to, you know, it's not, not a very funny movie, so you, you don't get a lot of laughs or, or that sort of thing. But there was like just the spectacle or like uh, the the moments where you go from just like crazy, pardon the pun, high octane action to like hard cut to black um or or 
fade out. Like you had a couple of those moments and then, and then Miller just let the camera linger. Like that, that moment when, uh, Max is just laying in the sand. And initially you can't really tell, uh, what you're looking at, what the, like, it's an amazing, I couldn't even tell the scale of the image. I couldn't tell if I was looking at Hills. That's exactly what I was going to say is like, the scale is amazing. And, and the way it just slowly reveals, like with each sort of movement of the pebbles and the sand falling off, like you start to see things, you know, you start to get an idea, but it still takes a while to fully understand, like, where the camera is placed, what you're looking at exactly. Like really like that alone, like was, I, I would go back to pay to just watch that. Like I, I love little moments like that. Uh, to me, the, the little moment in that film that stood out was when they went through whatever that wet, dry desert place was. It had the crow people walking uh-huh. that one totally unexplained shot of crow people. <laughs> Well, that that was supposed to be the green place, right? I that's what Spoilers. I thought. I think it was Spoilers, the green I guess. Place. Yeah. Um, but that's that's another thing though. Like he's uh, you know, that let's call it the green place or let's call it the blue place. Uh sure. that, you know, stuff that's going on in the blue place. How, you know, ballsy is it for for Miller to spend, I don't know, it's probably at least a quarter of this movie throughout, you know, in in a few different chunks, but in essentially black and white. It's like it almost feels like a throwback to like the monochrome tinted color film of like the silent era. Right. You know what I mean? Like something like the cabinet of Dr. Calgary or in any of those painted frame yeah. uh, color yeah. films uh, where, where um, they use, yeah, they use blue to indicate night. Right. Could you believe the palette they used in this film just all around? So, so amazing. So, I mean, and, and that was the thing, like, I think that's the thing that really hooked me from the trailer was just how incredibly beautiful it looked like it's if nothing else like it's eye candy and and when you're talking about eye candy let's just talk about the vehicles for a second (laughs) how much of the budget went to these amazing insane sid's toy box uh uh, vehicles yeah like sid sid from toy story the kind of diabolical kid who uh, just cuts up you know, toys and pieces them back together. Like it very much felt like that. It, it was, uh, yeah, I, I actually heard an interview, uh, maybe a week or two ago with, um, I don't remember the guy was an art director or what, what exactly his, uh, his role was in the film, but he was talking about, you know, the, the making of the vehicles and it was just kind of amazing. I mean, he talked about how, uh, Immortan Joe, he has his car is, a, in a, in a world where nothing matches, you know, everything is this hodgepodge glued together, whatever. Um, he has for his, you know, cruising vehicle, a coupe de ville on top of a coupe de ville. Like that's that alone. Like you see that and you know, that guy's powerful. The other thing they, all those cars actually ran. Someone actually yeah. put those together and they, they ran. They, it couldn't have been cheap. I don't, I don't know what they ended up doing with all of them or if they're just sitting on a lot somewhere, but it, it looked like I'm not a car guy. And even I was impressed yeah. just looking at all of it and, and seeing them and seeing the, the, the Beatles on the back of the, the 18 wheeler and just everything was all glued together in a really unique way and none of the cars looked alike and it and it really sold the whole environment of these guys are scavengers their main profession their main source of life their their uh their armor their swords whatever you want to consider it is cars and they have found a way to make them work yeah no i i think you're exactly right and you know we we touched on her a little bit but i think maybe let's let's talk a little bit more about furiosa because after all like it really honestly is uh, her, her film, like, you know, I, I think she's a, she's a great character. You know, I, I think she could go toe to toe with Max. And honestly, like if they, if they ended up in a brawl, I'm not sure who would come out the victor. No, she, she was definitely tough. You could, you could tell that, uh, from when she fought Max and mm-hmm. won essentially, I, I yeah. guess he pulled it out at the end, but, uh, she she definitely had her plan thought out. She had her, her sequence on her truck to where only she could start it. She was a strong, powerful female lead. And what I actually think is kind of sad about it is if the movie weren't called Mad Max, would as many people have went to see it? I, I mean, I don't I don't think so. I, I think the original title was 
supposed to be something like Mad Max Furiosa or or something to that effect. You know, I guess blending the two because I mean, yeah, it is it is her story. And and Charlize Theron knocks it out of the park. She just does a, a yeah. great job. I mean, I, I can't say enough about that. And her her amputated arm that I didn't know was coming. I don't know if it was in mm-hmm. a trailer or not. And I love the little attention to detail of her uh, painting an arm onto the war rig. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, she's just she's a badass character. And uh, one thing, if I I guess if I do have one criticism of the film, it seemed like Joe's wives, they they were maybe a tiny bit underdeveloped for what? No, no. They they had the pregnant one and the three other ones. Yeah, that's (laughs) or was it four? Was it three? I'm not sure. I I think you're 100 percent right. Yeah. Okay. I I really thought you were going to make a like a grand argument that I like totally missed uh, what was what was going on there. No. What what I will say is that they're the they're the briefcase from Pulp Fiction. They're the goal that you're trying to get there. This film, I think, essentially breaks down to being a Western and it's Mm -hmm. it's essentially stagecoach. Yeah, Red River. And and that's the goods they're trying to transport, which is terrible to say because it's it's human trafficking. It's a tough thing because I think for all all it does well with, you know, turning Charlie's Theron into an amazing, great, badass, you know, character like they they don't have a whole lot to do. And I guess, you know, maybe if you held them up against anyone other than Nux, the the war boy, um, maybe the other war boys aren't. Uh, very well developed either, but I don't think they get as much screen time as the brides do. Um, you get- Here's what I'll say. I think if they had developed it more, the film would have been worse because it's focus on the action. And, and I don't mean that to, to say I dislike female characters or anything like that, because I don't. But in this particular film, they, the they were just... Yeah. Yeah. They, they were the briefcase and you understood they were his wives. He wanted them. They were these beautiful girls and you needed to move them and anything more than that of trying to develop this one was this way or the, yeah. all the, the only thing we know is that the pregnant one was his favorite. That's literally all we know. I guess that's really my complaint is it, it felt like beyond the pregnant one and the redheaded one that kind of had a, a bit of a lovey thing going on with Nux. Like the other three, I couldn't really nail down anything to, you know, if, if they had each been given just a character trait to, to latch onto, I think it would have, that would have gone a long way because that's, I mean, that's basically what Miller's doing with a, a lot of this world anyway. Um, One of the things I really liked. Um, so when the, the spoilers, uh, when the, the pregnant one fell off the war rig and Mad Max says, she went under the wheels. Yeah. And then you see that could, she's still could, could alive. Could you say that one more time? She went under the wheels. Okay. Thank you. And and then you, you see that she's still alive when the doctor, I guess you would call him, uh, said, you know, she's still alive, but the baby didn't make it. I thought that was going to come back to bite him in some way. It was going to be sabotaging oh, yeah. the relationship of Furiosa and Max or something. I think Furiosa is kind of, she's not exactly, you know, doing this just as an altruistic act to save these women. She's kind of doing it selfishly in in a in a way. I mean, there's that little exchange that she has with Max where she says, this is the best shot I'll ever have. And then, you know, they're sitting up in the front of the rig and Max kind of points back to the brides and he says, and them. No, no, he doesn't. He goes, and them. Yeah, yes, that he, he says that. Do you, do you want to let, let's redo this real quick? OK, I'll be Furiosa. You'll be Max. All right. This is the best shot I'll ever have. And them. They're looking for hope. <clears throat> She's basically dismissing them. Like, it doesn't matter if they get to where they're going or not. Like, I'm giving them hope right now. And, you know, and then it basically goes on to say, like, I think Max says something about, uh, you know, hope without any resolve is absolutely worthless or is is worse than having it at all. Something something to that effect. And, and what I liked about Furiosa, I felt like the wives and freeing them was... Um, not, not that it was altruistic. She, it was her motivation to save herself as well. Like without them, she may have been fine with just staying. She didn't didn't have an excuse to, to go off and, and pull the stunt maybe. Right. And, and she didn't like, if, if we're going to talk about a Morton Joe, he, he had a, a thirst for power and for greatness and having people follow him that she did not have. That's, you know, that's probably true. And you know, Jake, you just said thirst for power. I'm getting a little thirsty, a little parched. Ah, is it, is it time for the Chris Gallagher beer recommendation? I think it is time for the Chris Gallagher beer recommendation. 
The climate of Fury Road is hot, it's dry, it's oppressive. So you're probably going to want an ice-cold, refreshing beverage in your hand while watching it. And since this is a summer movie, I've got an ale that's perfect for summer sipping. Indian Pale Ales are one of my favorite styles to drink in this season. They're light and crisp, and their hops provide a great, sharp floral flavor. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. IPAs can be a little scary. After all, IPA means hops, and hops mean bitterness. But while high IBU batches have taken over the craft beer market in the past few decades, IPAs weren't always so abrasive. If you've sworn off the style in the past, I suggest you give it a second chance with East IPA by Brooklyn Brewery. It's well-balanced, not too bitter, and really refreshing. I enjoyed several of these during my stay in Brooklyn last week, and I could not resist making the recommendation here. That's East IPA by Brooklyn Brewery. See, that, that's an interesting recommendation because I, I always thought a, a summer shandy paired well with Mad Max Fury Road. I hate you. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road is currently burning up big screens everywhere. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear your voice. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail in your best Immortan Joe voice at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. What about my best Max voice? Either are acceptable. <clears throat> Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss Ambition Addicts. I had a dream that I saw Woody and Will. They'd make camp at the foot of some hill. There was no sound, no wind was blowing. There was no fire, they were both just a glowing. They were waiting on somebody, but it wasn't me. I was just there to witness some kind of charity. One when no one was God, no one was even a king. They were just three windows looking at how things used to be. Oh, please tell me, please tell me who that third one. Oklahoma songwriter Bo Jennings grew up admiring Will Rogers. Now he's turned his fascination for Oklahoma's favorite son into a collection of songs and a brand new documentary titled The Vertigris in Search of Will Rogers. The film premieres next weekend at the Dead Center Film Festival in Oklahoma City. He joins me now to discuss the project. Bo Jennings, welcome to War Starts at Midnight. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, to start out, uh, tell me just a little bit about the project and, and how it began. The project began um, as a um, a little bit as I guess you could say a a lark. Really, um, I was I had I think if I remember right, I was talking to some friends about you know wouldn't it be interesting or kind of funny or something to uh, to write a whole record of based on the life of Will Rogers, and we may, we might have even had like a jokey title for it at first. <laughs> This is a while back. I can't remember, but um, it was more of a, this is, this is a kind of a, a ridiculous idea. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, but I remember writing the first song, which ended up being the, um, the last song on the album called into the wind. And I remember the song came pretty easily and I was really pleased with it. And it, it grew out of there. I I wrote that song from a uh, from a book I I had about Will, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to do some, I'm going to do another one, and the rest came fairly easy. Uh, and at that point, I I realized I wanted to take the project more seriously, and maybe not record this album at a at a studio in the traditional way, but try and treat it a little more as a little bit more of a special kind of project. And, um, I think that at that time I was kind of in to uh, reading about Alan Lomax, um, and the way he documented, uh, folk singers back in the twenties who, um, you know, he would record them in their element. He would travel to them. And I, I think I was just, um, 
kind of marrying those ideas, I thought, well, I, it'd be great to travel to where Will Rogers went and record these songs, you know, on, on location where mm-hmm. he, where he lived or worked or did whatever he did. How, how did that then turn into a film from, you know, kind of this out of the box, uh, recording idea into a documentary actually about Will Rogers and these songs that you've written about him. I think it was just, you know, if I'm going to go to this length, if I'm going to go to these efforts to, uh, to, to travel to all these places, you know, we, it probably started, I I can't remember at this point, it probably started just as, well, let's make sure we bring a good camera guy Mm -hmm. and, uh, take some good photos and that could be the album artwork or something. Um, it was a very organic growth. And once I thought more about it, I thought, well, maybe we can make some cool music videos. Is that how Bradley Beasley got involved? The the director of Oki Noodling and the Flaming Lips doc, Fearless Freaks, and and those great uh, kind of old, weird Flaming Lips videos? Yeah, I think the idea to, to make a, at the very least, a series of music videos and at the most... I couldn't dream of at the time to make a documentary. That idea was kind of there before um, Brad came on board. Okay. And I had that idea um, knowing that I would need help to make the documentary. I'd never done any kind of film project before. And honestly, he was kind of my, you know, number one, number one idea as far as who could help me collaborate on it. But I didn't know him at the time. But right around then, I went to South by Southwest and played a uh, played a show, and he came out because we had some mutual friends, and we we were introduced, and uh, he was like, you know, he likes the show, and he's like, hey, if you ever want to work on something, let me know. And I thought, well, <laughs> have I got the project for you? Yeah, well, he he's kind of the perfect guy for this. Like it it just kind of makes sense, especially from something like Fearless Freaks. Yeah, he um. He'd already, you know, made Okie Noodling, Fearless Freaks, and Sweethearts of the Prison Rodeo. Mm-hmm. Just had kind of made a name for himself documenting uh, cool Oklahoma stories in a uh, in a somewhat offbeat way. And I, I was a big fan of all the stuff he had done. So, I just considered it um, a little bit far-fetched. But it, it would have, to, to me at the time, it was far-fetched that he would want to help out. So when he wanted to help out, it was just, you know, I was really over the moon about it. Yeah. So how much of the documentary is like performance in, you know, in these locations and how much of it is kind of trying to, uh, you know, tell the story about, you know, who Will Rogers was to an audience who may have kind of forgotten about him. Right. I think, um, it's, there's actually not a whole lot of performance uh, in the documentary in terms of running time, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all it's all completely driven by performance in terms of, you know, how do we get to this next place and what does this next spot mean? Um, so it's completely driven by the need to perform. But uh, I wanted to be careful and not make a performance film or like a concert film. Right. And that was actually something helpful that Brad suggested early on. He, he pointed out that when he made fearless freaks, I think the longest performance of any song in that film, he told me was maybe like 30 seconds, you know, and that, that was a little bit surprising to me to hear him say that, but it makes total sense because, you know, the record is the record. The record is for you to listen to and kind of dive into the songs. Yeah. And the film is more, it has a different purpose. It's it's to tell you a story. So there's definitely song performances in the film, but there's a, there's more of a narrative arc that we were going for. You just mentioned the album, uh, which recently came out. Uh, that's a studio performance of of the songs, correct? That's true. Yeah. How did yeah. that sort of differ from what you got on location, and how was it influenced by it? So this whole process started back in 2008, and the record probably would have come out you know, 2010 or so had the film part not been involved. But I I found myself as I went to locations, you know, just out of necessity, because there were so many logistics involved, I would, I would prepare a song before I got to a location, because I had to have so many other things in place ready to go. So that when I actually was time to 
to play the song out in the field, you know, I kind of wanted that to be my last thing to worry about. But I would notice as I got to places, whatever feeling I would get sometimes would say that song isn't right. The song doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple times where I rewrote the song maybe the night before we actually did the shoot <laughs> or I would change the lyrics or, or maybe keep the lyrics and change the music. But, um, I really wanted the location to influence the songs as much as possible. So they were developed, uh, in tandem, I guess you could say. So then when, it, when you went into the studio, did you have a pretty good idea of kind of sonically what they were going to be and, and that sort of thing? Was that all after you had recorded on location? Yeah. I mean, it would be like, let's go do a shoot. Hey, that sounds great. Go do the song in the studio. Okay. Maybe then we would do a song in the studio. I'd go out and do the shoot and the song worked better a certain way on the shoot than it did in the studio. And sometimes I would just let the songs exist in those two different versions. The film has songs in it that the album doesn't and vice versa. Okay. So yeah, to the degree I could, I, I let them influence each other. Well, uh, that's all the time that we've got, Bo. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the film premieres next weekend at Dead Center. If people want to catch it, when and where can they find it? Well, um, they can check com. I've got the screening times listed on there. Or they could check the Dead Center website, which I, I think is deadcenterfilm.org. That, that will have the screening times. And then after Dead Center, um, we'll announce a couple screening dates. Um, we're going to do a, a short screening tour with um, the Vertigris, my film, as well as Brad Beasley's new short film. Oh, nice. Uh, called Calls to Okies. We'll be doing a couple dates uh, later at, in the, at the end of the summer. So um, we'll announce those here pretty soon as well. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. Uh, Bo, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And then off in the distance he came walking up slow It was like looking in a mirror when he got too close He said, would you fellas know just where it is I might be First they both looked at him and Then they both looked at me So this week's special features section is a little bit different than what we typically do. It's, you know, not necessarily directly connected to the film, but more sprouted out of my sort of enamorment with who is a Morden Joe? How did he get to the place he is? Uh, and what, like, was he ever a good guy was, was sort of the, the thought process that got us to this discussion of ambition addicts. In a different film, would, would, could you have spun it a different way and saw him as the hero, the rise to power? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, maybe there is a backstory to a Morden Joe where he wasn't always pure evil. Like, you know, we, we see him here at, you know, his kind of frail end of the road, uh, place in, in Mad Max Fury Road. So, you know, let's just dive right in. Uh, one of the first characters that came to mind and, you know, maybe this is unfair because he's just so obvious and perfect for the list. But, uh, for, for me, it was Charles Foster Kane. He, he's the, he's the archetype of the ambition addicts. Yeah. Basically, basically. I mean, he's, he's one of those like you, you really should hate him. But there's something is, and I think that's maybe a defining characteristic of that. That's maybe a little further away from a Morden Joe than what we actually see of him. But, you know, it's these characters that a lot of times are, they're doing some pretty awful things, or at least they eventually lead to some pretty awful things. But there is something about them that we can still attach ourselves to as be it the anti-hero or whatever, uh, because of just that drive that they have. Right. And in, t in TV, the, the relation would be Walter White. You watch him, you see him do terrible, awful things. And somehow he's, he's still a character you want to root for in a weird way. Yeah, exactly. I think Walter White's a perfect recent example of that. And, you know, maybe, you know, rooting for him. I, I think there were definitely people, you know, sort of along the way, there were different junctures or different checkpoints where, uh, people kind of got off the Walter White bandwagon, but not everyone did like, uh, there. And by the end, you're either, you're either for some reason still rooting for him or you are finally rooting against him, but 
curious as to how this all comes down. And, and for an ambition addict, especially in Walter White, it's that he keeps grabbing for more. He, yeah. He's never satisfied. He always has to be bigger and badder and have people know who he is, which you would think would be a bad thing for someone in his line of work. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that's a great point. I mean, that's one of the things that I really saw in Morton Joe. You know, he's reached this place where he basically has everything he needs. He has an abundance of water. He has, you know, food and crops growing in, uh, in mass. Like he has everything that he needs in this hellish landscape. And that's not enough for him because he doesn't have an heir to his throne to continue on his legacy. Right. And in a different film, if he's your Walter White, maybe he he starts off giving the people water and he thinks of himself as a stable protection protector of the water well. And and he's just looking for an heir to continue on that protection of his people there. And his ambition is what continues to drive him up. You would think, don't you have enough? Isn't the having having don't you have what you need? But but for all of these characters, it's never enough. Well, and maybe a closer, you know, relation to someone like a Morton Joe um, that that I have down here is someone like Loki from the Avengers. Uh, Loki's one of those characters. There's no doubt that, uh, you know, he's he's a bad dude doing bad things. But at the same time, you kind of want to root for him. You know, he's got that charisma. He's got that drive. And there's just something about him that's kind of irresistible. Right. And, and you can't have this discussion without mentioning uh, Al Pacino and Scarface. And now we've mentioned him, so we can move on. Thank you. Thank you for not dragging me into a conversation about Al Pacino and Scarface. But if we were going to talk about it, I would say Michael Corleone from The Godfather is an ambition addict. Absolutely. And I would say a much better choice too, a much well, more well-rounded character in that, in that case. And you know, that, that goes back to, you know, family, like he's, he's really doing it for. Uh, you know, it's a family business. He's got to protect his family. He's seen terrible things happen to his family, albeit because of the business that they're in. Uh, uh, Fredo, Fredo, Chris. Well, you know, Fredo crossed a line. He he, he was he was smart. He could have had his own family. He could have. He could have had his own family. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, another more recent example, uh, I would say Jordan Belfort from uh from Wolf of Wall Street. Really, you I see I. I don't know if I would agree with Jordan Belfort. Like he is a he's not a character that I ever felt like I wanted to hang out with or he's he's not quite like definitely the ambition there for sure. But for me, at least he's on the other side where like I I don't know. There's something like I just I really hate Jordan Belfort. He's he's a great antagonist in a movie with no protagonist, I guess. And, and 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 that might be a good way to put it, but I mean, I I didn't feel for a Morton Joe at all. Like I said, I thought they were they were all despicable, and it was fun to hate on them. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, Wolf of Wall Street's a different movie, uh, yeah, with, well, with, with a little no more protagonist. Weird to say that Wolf of Wall Street is a little more grounded, but <laughs> in some way, it is. You know, actually, this you know this is something that's not anything new. It's it goes back a long ways. I mean, what about would you say someone like Macbeth? falls into this oh oh for sure i would i would say Macbeth falls in it and if we want to talk about movie versions i would say uh throne of blood by kurosawa where mifune's performance as uh, i forget the character's name but Macbeth is is just perfect hey jake yes can i confess a war crime to you <laughs> real quick or you are not about to tell me you haven't seen throne of blood i have never seen throne of blood Oh, I saw Throne of Blood in high school. Which really? Thanks, thanks uh, to Miss Elizabeth Kelsey, my 11th and 12th grade English teacher, for making me watch that film. That's a fake person. She has two first names. No, she she's why I went in the film to begin with. So a, a big thanks to her. Um, another one here. What do you think of Hal 9000? I, I could I could see it spun that way. He he, he definitely was trying to uh, push the, the, the realms of what you would think a uh, red glowing eye robot could do. <laughs> and, and take over the ship for himself, but but I don't I don't know if he was driven or if he was the devil, which I don't think is being as driven for ambition as yeah. it is a an evil antagonist. Well, and that's the like I he's maybe the most interesting one that uh, I you know came up with in my in my trying to rack my brain because I honestly if I if I'm being totally honest I don't necessarily think he totally fits for a 
number of reasons. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I, I think the, the case could be made that, uh, you know, he is, he is ambition in the largest sense in that he is the transcendence from almost humans have had their time and now a, higher being is taking control and is doing, you know, doing something beyond even our comprehension. And he's not going to let a little, uh, bit of, you know, humanity stand in his way. He's not going to let a, a race of people stand in his way of getting, getting to the end of his mission. And, and I, I can see that that's a compelling argument to, uh, to go to a, an artier and more obscure film. Uh, do you think Ron Burgundy fits this, uh, <laughs> fits this ambition addict? A- absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it, it's definitely in a, a different, uh, a different tone, I guess, a different delivery of it, but, uh, he is in a lot of ways, his own worst enemy. Um, I, I think it's interesting to watch a film like Anchorman and, and watch his arc there because yeah. it's really distilling down what that genre or what that character archetype goes through. Uh-huh. It, it, it pits his desire, his ambition directly against his love, and he has to make hard choices about uh, his wife or uh, his his lover, uh, Veronica Corningstone, getting the anchor job or him. And mm-hmm. he, he's willing to forsake her in order to advance his own career. Or maybe yeah. he just hates women. Well, also possible. It, it was the 70s, so that's probably at least thrown in there somewhere. True, yeah. One, one that I wanted to ask you, did you think uh, Did you think Tyler Durden from Fight Club? So I, I saw this one on your list, and, you know, I really don't know. I don't I, – I want you to make the case for Tyler Durden because I, I'm not sure I, I think he, he belongs in this conversation. Are we outside of the realm of spoilers for Fight Club? I, if you haven't, if people are listening to this and they haven't seen Fight Club, I don't know why they're listening to this. It, to, to me, it, maybe Ambition Addict is is that uh, is in all of us or is a part of uh, a character. And as far as uh, Brad Pitt's t- uh, Tyler Durden, that half of what was the? Uh, well, he didn't have a name. I, I think Joe or John was it? John? Yeah. Was I am John's yeah. ruptured colon or you know? That's right. Okay. So, but that half of him is is driving for bigger and bigger things always. It's competing against his, his just like Ron Burgundy, it's competing against his need for love and his own personal things to drive him to bigger and bigger things for this anarchy or revolution that they're driving towards with all these fight clubs and all these towns. Uh-huh. And it's it's something he has to actively fight against, which is himself or his his Tyler Durden in order to keep in check. So it's more of a splintered part of a character that's driving for these it's, bigger and bigger it's, things. It's the postmodern ambition addict, I for guess. For sure. But in, <sighs> in, in, I don't know if I sold you on that one or not, but you it's, know, it's I, one. You've, you, you've brought me around a little bit, but I'm still not convinced on it. Like, I just, I feel like that, and maybe, I mean, honestly, maybe it's just, I have a bit of a, as much as I like uh, Fight Club and, and I like uh, David Fincher, there's something about Fight Club that over the years has worn on me a little bit. I not necessarily because of the film, but I think because of the what the film has come to represent, you know, and Tyler Durden has be, kind of become a, a figurehead of a certain broy whatever. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I love Fincher, but Fight Club's not actually my favorite of his either. And I, I like the film. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a good film. But again, maybe it's just that I I waited ten years to see it, or or knew the people who liked Fight Club more than I uh, than I would like to, and then that influenced my opinion of the film when I finally saw it. Yeah, I I think that's probably fair. You know, I I think we should wrap it up. Um, I've got one more. Do you wanna Do you wanna take one more, and then we'll... I want to take one more for sure. Okay, y- you first. You mentioned earlier because you are contractually obligated when you appear on the show, uh, Dan Harmon's story circle, which is basically taken directly from, uh, the hero's journey, you know, the, the Joseph Campbell, uh, idea of the basic structure of, of a, a story. Um, this character comes right out of one of those, uh, George Lucas's Anakin Skywalker character very much fits into this, I think, uh, in, in the most like sort of, uh, throw it up black and white up against the wall and see the transition from good intentions to an evil who just barely happens to have a little bit of 
uh, hope left under there. Right. And being spread out over six movies, you you get a, a lot of that arc and you get to see the the rise and fall of the ambition addict and, yeah. and really weighing his choices of what he wants as far as his ambition goes against his family and his love and all that other. Across those six movies, I think the greatest part of his arc is probably, you know, all that time that they just spend rolling in the grass in uh, episode two. Uh, I would call episode two a war crime of mine if I thought it was a war crime. It is not a war crime. It, it, is, it might yeah. be a war crime. You know, there is. Are, are you familiar with the Machete trilogy or the, I'm sorry, the Machete order of watching uh, the Star Wars movies? No, no. Okay, it's basically this guy on, I think it was on a forum, I could be wrong, but he came up with an order for watching the Star Wars movies. Because honestly, like, if you watch the prequels first, it really, particularly, I think it was for, you know, having a child watch watch them for the first time. And he was curious, like, how do you not give away the best part of the best movie being the uh reveal that Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker's father. Spoilers, Chris. Spoilers. Oh man. Uh yeah, spoilers, I'm sorry. Given that <laughs> is the father of <laughs> Because really if you play, you know, just chronologically by the numbers, not by release, um, it's not a reveal at all. You absolutely know. And so we came up with this order that you you actually watch four and five, so A New Hope, and then Empire Strikes Back. You th- throw out one, or one is optional, I think, um, and then you watch two, three, six. So uh, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi. Um, and honestly, like I I have done this. I think I would rather throw out two than one not to say not to say that one is a great movie by any means jake lloyd is awful but it's not as boring as two so i don't know like just just don't watch i mean i I guess you could throw in revenge of the sith just as a like one-off maybe if you want Sorry, I've really derailed this conversation. What is your, <laughs> Jake, what is what is your final uh, ambition addict? Now, I thought about saying Chuck Tatum, uh, Kirk Douglas's character from Ace in the Hole, and I thought about saying the immortal Hans Gruber from Die Hard to stay in the action genre, but I'm going to stick on the road trip western, which I think Mad Max actually fits in pretty well, and say John Wayne's Thomas Dunson from Red River. Now, I don't want to get in too much uh, depth on it because I know... The other uh, side of the microphone has a war crime to confess. Yeah, you're, you're just you're just grilling me with the war crimes tonight. I'm sorry. I, I should be a, a nicer guest. I should I should not point them out. But Red River is a classic, and and I'll give you a pass on that one because I hadn't seen it until earlier this year. And it, much like Mad Max, is a road film with a very ambitious character, and there's a chase involved, and. There, there are just a lot of elements that are similar to Mad Max, but Thomas Dunson is so focused on making it, doing things his way, making it to, uh, I believe it's Missouri, and, and selling his cattle, that he makes some really tough choices that you wouldn't even expect from a Western made in, uh, in the 50s, I believe it was. I would say that's a great pick if I had seen it. Honestly, I've, I've tried to get my hands on Red River, and what's actually been holding me back is... Uh, my local library only has the uh, MGM DVD copy, and I really no, you want the Criterion. I really want to watch that Criterion release. So one of these days, uh, one of these days, I'll I'll get my hands on it. And if you need any more motivation, uh, Viking Man from Zeroville says it's the greatest film ever made, or the greatest Western ever made. Does he? I don't remember that part. Yeah, he he, he says all these uh, young kids want to be uh, John Ford because he's great at Westerns, but Howard uh-huh. Hawks made the greatest Western, but he also made films in all these other genres, and uh-huh. that's why that's right. Viking yeah. Man wants to be Howard Hawks. Okay. Well, and on that note, I'm not going to be able to trump Viking man. So let's just wrap this up. We'd love to hear your feedback. Who do we get right? Who do we get wrong? And why is Jake so wrong about Tyler Durden? Hey, come on. Email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. So I reach down and break the surface with my fingertips. Myself in the current of the birds. I 
Jake, we've made it to the end of another show, so let's celebrate that small victory with a couple recommendations. What do you got? Well, I wanted to think of the most similar movie I could to Mad Max, so I went with the movie filled with cars on a long journey and explosions. And um, do I have you sold already, Chris? I'm intrigued. Keep going. All right. What if I tell you this? Uh, what if is the movie version of Mario and Luigi driving cars on a treacherous track? trying to see who could get there first and survive the trip without exploding. Okay. I'm talking about Henry George Clouseau's Wages of Fear. And yes, Uh. there is a Mario and Luigi, although uh, looks-wise it should be flipped. Uh, Yeah, yeah. um, This this is a a Franco-Italian thriller film uh, set in South America, and uh, a a number of poor, out-of-work Europeans try to drive a truck from one town to an oil well uh, filled with nitroglycerin in order to put this fire at an oil well out. And uh, along the journey, it's it's suspense the entire time. And obviously not, It's this film is from 1953, so it's not the same visual extravaganza that you get in Mad Max. And it's not the same speed as Mad Max, but it is a road film, it is high tension, and it is definitely worth a view. I love this movie. I think, you know, the the speed or the pace is I, I don't think it works against. It. I think it works with uh, the, the film in Wages of Fear because it's almost they're going so slow because at any minute, one false move, one bump and they're dead. Oh, it, it's great. And uh, this is a film watching it. Uh, I don't know if there are any other Kurosawa buffs out there, but it feels like a Kurosawa film. It's a lot. It has a lot of pan wipes. It's the the way the story's told. The it the shots are constructed in a similar way. It it's it's a it's a really good film. Have you? I'm curious. Have you seen the remake of this film? Um, what? I I take that as a no. No, okay, there's so, a remake. <laughs> so there was a remake made uh, in the 70s. I uh, I kind of want uh, I want you to guess which which 70s filmmaker you think uh, American filmmaker you think remade this. Oh, man, I don't know. I'm just hoping that it stars Richard Gere and it has a lot of full frontal <laughs> man nudity, uh, a la American Breathless. That is uh, the, I think that's the second American Breathless reference in a row. <laughs> OK, no, it does not star Richard Gere, but it does star Roy Schneider, if that uh, piques your interest at all. Uh, not quite Richard Gere, but tell me more. It was directed by William Friedkin. <laughs> in 1977 <laughs> and it's called sorcerer i you, i will admit i haven't seen it are you serious yeah i'm absolutely serious <laughs> um like and i mean if you if you read the description of it uh it sounds like a pretty direct you know remake like uh but anyway like i like i said i haven't seen it but uh friedkin i believe maybe it's in didn't i believe he just had a biography that came out maybe a couple years ago. And I think that he talks about like uh, the one thing that he's done in his career that, and this, I could be totally ruining this. This could be absolutely incorrect. Uh, but I believe he, he tells a story about basically the one thing that he did in his career that he really wouldn't do if he could go back and re redo it was uh, film a scene with a bus on basically a rope bridge Oh. Uh, in South America. Wow. Because uh, in a very Herzogian sort of feat, um, he nearly killed everyone. <laughs> wow. I, I don't think it actually had nitroglycerin in it, but it was one of those things where I think the uh, rope bridge was actually a hazard and they were afraid it might actually fall apart. Well, that would definitely uh, help the actors get in character for a film like Wages of Fear or yeah. its American remake. Yeah. What what uh, happened to Americans remaking every single French art film? I, I don't quite understand it. Superhero movies. Uh, that's right. Uh, is this part of the, the grand French cinematic universe, Wages of Fear? Yes. Yes, it is. 
Well, we're kind of in lockstep with our recommendations here. You went with a road movie, and I'm going to do the same. Uh, my pick is the 1994 Australian comedy, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. The titular Priscilla is not a person, but a giant painted bus transporting a drag queen cabaret troupe across the Australian outback. The premise might not be groundbreaking. You know, it's three disparate personalities trapped in a car together, driving across the country. But it's a sweet and funny movie. Plus, why would you pass up the opportunity to see Hugo Weaving, Terrence Stamp, and a young Guy Pearson drag? I recommend it. Check it out. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is currently available to rent basically everywhere. iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, I'm sure many others as well. Uh, Wages of Fear is available to stream on Hulu or rent on iTunes or Amazon. Or, as always, check your local public library to see if you can score a copy for free. And uh, that'll do it for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you like the show, help us reach new listeners by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. And if you hate the show, hate the guest host, or you have any other comments, just email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com or give us a call on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Music on this week's show comes from The Vertigris by Bo Jennings. To hear more, visit bojennings.bandcamp.com. Tune in next time when Chris and Hunter will be discussing Jurassic World. Thanks for listening. <sighs> Goodbye. Or, or if email isn't your thing, we'd. Why can't I read, Jake? You took too many film classes as English credits. <laughs> oh, that did happen. That certainly happened. Uh, <laughs> nothing like learning about uh, the male gaze for your English credit. <laughs> hey, you, you saw a guy get circumcised one time for an English credit. <laughs> I did. Perfume nightmares. We both saw. We both saw someone actually get circumcised for an English credit. I didn't see it for a credit. I saw it because I came to see Easy Rider that night. <laughs> That's. <laughs> I didn't even get a credit. <laughs>